my goodness gracious scorekeepers we're back it is time for another episode of the score minnesota operas podcast all about opera classical music pop culture from the perspective of three black queer opera administrators my name is rocky jones as always i am here with my two fabulous co-hosts Paige reynolds yavo inawale how are you doing today hey you know <laughs> i'm out here i'm out here it's uh what does w- the theme song say keeping your head above water make yes. it away when you can <laughs> <laughs> iktr as they say on the twitter.com <laughs> <laughs> and of course from richmond virginia uh the fabulous dr lee bynum hello how are you hey y'all i think i'll talk <laughs> southern since i'm at home <laughs> yes how, how are things down in, in in richmond how are things in virginia unseasonably warm oh. it's a little <laughs> as much as i was complaining about the 30 degree like intense switch to 30 degrees that we had because it was like oh it's 70 degrees and then it was 30 degrees but now I'm down here and I'm like oh it's also like 70 degrees here I don't like this like can we agree that we have seasons and seasons come with certain (laughs) weather patterns and then let's do those weather patterns and stick to them like if we can all be in agreement that that's the thing then I'll be good because I don't know how I feel about all this back and forth I really don't yeah i don't know i mean i agree (laughs) with you but i just kind of feel like we're just as a species (laughs) just sort of in this season where we're not really agreeing on anything (laughs) agreement is a big ass yeah i don't know why the weather would be any different but Maybe a little dream, I guess. I'll concede. I'll concede that. Ooh, conceding. That's fun. (laughs) Speaking of agreeing and conceding, how is everyone, is ever, have have we all sort of come back into our bodies after that that little election moment last week? You know. How how is everyone feeling? (laughs) <laughs> glad it's done yes, yes. if we honest Absolutely. i'm just glad it's done Absolutely. i couldn't i couldn't i couldn't watch tv anymore Seriously. i had to mute mm. the commercials i couldn't do it anymore yeah angie craig is gonna eat your baby <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my god <laughs> and the mailings I, I i for real got to the point of i i didn't look at anything if it came on a glossy mm-hmm. postcard and said to, <laughs> and had some headshots on it it went in the recycling immediately yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, fortunately, as I was saying before we started recording, it doesn't look like the authoritarians and the Nazis and the Proud Boys are going to be, you know, storming the streets immediately. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that's good. Find some wood to knock on, please. Yes. Well, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. 
But you know, I hate to say it, but we thought that before January sixth too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I, that's what I meant by immediately. <laughs> that's what I meant by immediately. We got like six weeks. <laughs> oh lord. <laughs> I don't know. You just never know what's gonna happen. This season of America is really wild. Who are writers are just doing anything. Mm. <laughs> Stay on your toes. Uh, I'm waiting for my spinoff. Like, let let me see what's on some of these other shows because this is a it's a bit much. I feel like we have this saying at our house that every time before Damien turns on the news, he says, "Let's see if we still have a country intact." Mm-hmm. And the fact that it is actually a question every mm. single time. I mean, that's, that's a lot, you know? If we got to ask every day, do we? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that is the question. (laughs) If I got to wonder every day, am I missing something huge? Was our democracy destabilized overnight? And I just don't know it yet because I don't know what's going to happen when I look at CNN. I don't know. We might not be functional. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, as, as most everyone knows, you know, I grew up in D.C. Both of my parents worked in politics for a time. So, I mean, election night used to be like, you know, fun, party, you know, <laughs> whoever, you know, yeah. like, you know, sometimes you win some, you lose some. But, you know, <laughs> now it's just like. Higher stakes. It's just fraught. It's yeah. it's so anxiety. Yeah. Like, I, I, the anxiety levels get so high for me, yeah. like the last like 20 years that like, I just, I can't do it anymore. And I just found that I just had to just like take it in little teeny tiny doses, like once an hour, go see what is, what is Steve Kornacki yelling about? And <laughs> Forsyth <laughs> County, Georgia, DeKalb County. Ah! <laughs> it's just like, okay, 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 great. I, I think I'm getting the picture here. I'm gonna go back to, you know, housewives or whatever. <laughs> um, it's, it's just too much at this point. And then, you know, waking up though the next day and just seeing that things were. okay (laughs) question mark (laughs) (laughs) i still feel a little unnerved i still kind of feel like what's next oh absolutely what's about to happen absolutely and especially like looking at those numbers which are not surprising at this point but Mm -hmm. are still baffling when you just look at white america and the breakdown Mm -hmm. and just vast majorities Going out and voting for these fascists and yeah. voting against their own best interests. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I saw something, a tweet that was like, you know, people keep saying we're voting, they're voting against their own best interests. Maybe we're just not cognizant of what their interests actually are, or we don't actually want to like, you know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like if you're, even if you like, if you are a white 
white folks though and if you are anywhere middle class and below mm-hmm. you voting against your best interests mm-hmm. whether mm-hmm. you think so or not, i mm-hmm. don't know what kind of mental gymnastics you got to get there but you I feel like when we do the math, <laughs> if we did the math, I'm not a mathematician, I'm not a statistician, I, I don't do that stuff, but I'm, I bet there's even numbers to support it, that they are voting against their own best interests. Yeah, well, yes. I mean, that's the way I see it, but. Yeah. <laughs> well, there there were a couple of things that I was seeing yesterday that like really threw me and it was, um, it was um hold on let, let me make sure i i i say this right because it was something that was so weird to me that i couldn't actually figure it out in oregon whether there was a a ballot measure whether or not to establish a right to health care and it didn't pass right hmm. so it would have amended the state constitution to ensure that people had access to affordable health care. Who is voting against that? Like, like I actually want somebody to walk me through why that's not a good idea, right? And, and I want them to do that armed with the information that how much of the rest of the industrialized world has universal health care, mm-hmm. right? And, and just kind of, I just want people to tell me why that's not a thing. It wasn't like this didn't pass among executives of healthcare or insurance companies, right? Like if that were the case, I'd be like, oh, okay, I see what y'all are doing. But like in this <laughs> moment where it was just like regular old people voting and and there was a majority of them that said, no, we don't think that we should have a, a right to healthcare. I just want somebody to tell me what that is. Like, like, <laughs> like walk me through it. I mean, I guess it's the same logic as as the covid denial and <laughs> so illogic right, right. illogic <laughs> nobody's gonna tell me about how to take care of my own body and mm-hmm. unless it's I'm <sighs> a woman who was having who was pregnant <laughs> i know the right. same logic that tells us housing ain't a right oh my god yeah even though we also need literally need that to live We've got to do some of this education system, you know, like the, the, the ways that critical thinking skills are not showing up in political debates are, are costing all of us, like the most basic access to things that we need just as humans. And these are not things that are particular to, to black people or mm-hmm. queer people or people who live near urban centers. It's like, everybody needs healthcare. Everybody needs mm-hmm. access to housing everybody needs access to food and people are like no no let's not let's not no no bootstraps (laughs) (laughs) bootstraps they're like well i actually have those things right now and i'm good so no no. thank you (laughs) america yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah, I saw this hilarious um meme that was like um this person in Canada and they were like how people outside the US are 
um, viewing U.S. elections, and it was like, on the blue side, 50%, everyone gets a puffy, and on the red side, (laughs) 50%, diarrhea every day, all day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's accurate. (laughs) all right you guys come on (laughs) just the cognitive dissonance of it all and it's just like i don't know how to i don't know how to resolve it i mean there's nothing we can do Mm -hmm. you know i mean i i don't i don't think there's anything that we can do i mean when i look at what we're up against you can't like have certain kinds of conversations with people anymore like there there is no common ground there's no interest in there being a common ground it's either you know i want my side at all costs or the alternative which is people attempting to do something for the public good and i think that's the thing that's really scary because i i feel like it hasn't always been like this in my lifetime Mm -hmm. like there was a point when i felt like people clearly had their perspectives, but there was some sense that we were all in it together, right? And like, it seems like it's given way to some kind of zero sum. I mean, that's what I mean when I talk about like growing up in DC when I was a kid, it was like, there was this feeling that like, yes, like, you know, we're Democrats, they're Republicans, but like at some point, like we're all humans. Right. And we can Mm -hmm. all like go out and talk and like, you know, have a steak and a bourbon, whatever, (laughs) (laughs) and come up with some sort of compromise where, like, everyone leaves unhappy, but at least, like, we're moving (laughs) forward (laughs) and we're getting something done. But now it's just, like, that's just impossible. And it's just, you know, the political landscape is just completely different and, you know, just the 24-7 fundraising cycle and just the outrage machine that is you know 24 7 cable news and any number and just good old-fashioned garden variety white supremacy which has just been stoked yeah thanks to trump and the murdochs and fox news and all of those Mm. oh Mm. let me not get us <laughs> oh wait, we don't have social media channels, so who's gonna say? <laughs> <laughs> That's right, never mind. <laughs> well, the the vitriol is exhausting, right? Mm. And I feel like because the work that we do at Minnesota Opera and on this podcast is sort of in the same kind of political space, right? Like there's a a way that it is framed as like a progressive activity and i feel like where i get some personal challenges is how do you turn it off right mm-hmm. like there there are times that i feel like i am at capacity for processing you know different ways to mitigate the centrifugal forces of of white supremacy and just need some moments of like cartoons and gummy bears or mm-hmm. something else to just like be the complete opposite because it it's a also a lot when it is your function to have to think about how white supremacy shows up in systems literally all day like it's it's a 
and you know, I say that fully having chosen this job, right? Nobody, you know, strong armed me into taking it. I, I applied and pursued it and packed up all my stuff and moved cross country to do it. And this is a very complicated context to do this kind of work because it feels like there, there are very few moments of respite in it. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah, especially when it's like not just your job or mm -hmm. your work, but mm -hmm. your, uh, it's, it's real for you and like mm -hmm. the way you, you see the world or the way you'd like to move throughout the world and, you know, for some of us, <laughs> for some of us, you know, um, it's not just, you know, EDI work or that right. I do EDI in my position at work. It's also like, I'm thinking on a daily basis about, <laughs> about how to uh, undo the internalized white supremacy mm -hmm. that I have as a black person. Mm -hmm. uh, oh my gosh, the gender patriarchy stuff. That's a whole nother level. Yeah, how, if you're really yeah. thinking about that, yeah. and. Mm -hmm. Hello. Oh my gosh. All just our intracommunal stuff, even yeah. just as queer mm -hmm. folks too. Yeah. And sometimes you feel like if you're aware to all of it all the time, it's like, yeah, when do I get yeah. a break? Yeah. If every, if, if everything, even outside of work, like your profession is the work yeah. also mm -hmm. of just yeah. like trying to be a better human in this I was gonna, I was gonna cuss, but this world, this <laughs> messed up world, this uh, tumultuous, tumultuous time. That's a good one. Tumultuous. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and it's just, it's just so exhausting. It's amazing how exhausting it is. And you think about, you look at the statistics, and the people who, you know, work in the EDI space professionally. You know, the average is, you know, one to two years. Mm -hmm in the in a position and I get it yeah. because it's just like it's taking you know sort of the things that I was thinking about you know just as a human like outside of of my profession just sort of move especially like moving to this new state where there are just far less people who look like me yeah. and starting to like unlearn relearn all of these things that I thought that I knew all of these things that like I didn't even realize were kind of internalized and I was doing that work sort of on my own and I think that kind of led me to starting to do some of this work professionally and then it was just sort of like okay well I'm I'm interested in this like let's dive deeper let's learn more let's go further let's go further and then all of a sudden it's like hey, here's a paycheck to do this professionally. And I was just like, okay, cool. <laughs> and like, oh, oh, so now I'm doing this 24 uh, seven. Oh, <laughs> mm -hmm. okay, cool. I'm really tired. <laughs> I'm really, really tired. <laughs> you know, and when we, we reach these moments in society or in history where like it all just sort of comes crashing down and all around us and it's just like 
here are all of our varying like identities intersecting and colliding in order to like you know create this this government <laughs> and it's just like combined with sort of like my neurodivergence anyway like my brain just wants to shut off just completely <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I just want to go crawl in bed like forever but like I know that we have to keep pressing forward and we have to keep doing this and as our guest coming up uh says <laughs> at one point please don't quit don't quit <laughs> <laughs> so you know I I don't want to quit but it's just like it's just so exhausting it's wild well how do you stay motivated right like how do you prioritize your own self-care when you are sort of dealing with everything that the two of you have enumerated and then from time to time you're, you're also throwing in like um like black on black xenophobia which is one of the ones that like sometimes really gets to me right or mm-hmm. the complexity of perceived power dynamics in spaces where that's not a thing that you're trying to project or even the the super complicated ways that your work is interpreted by other people and sometimes it's like they may not be aware that it's like no i'm i'm just at work right now right like i i i have perspectives about this but i also have a day job because i live in america and i have bills right so i i can't necessarily say every single thing that i would like to in every single context please don't project all of this stuff on me there are times that i am simply code switching because that is what is required (laughs) in the moment right (laughs) like there there are layers to it and it's a you know it's a matter for me sometimes of really asking myself how do i practice self-care i've i've had a bigger struggle with that recently because the way i used to do it was a lot of travel we Mm -hmm. would go places Mm, a lot where we could just sort of you know bring it down right Mm -hmm. and you know thanks a lot coronavirus so mm. now we can't really and and you know i didn't even realize how much of our like uh way of coping was like literally getting away like sometimes it's like mm. getting out of america or just like breaking out of our own context and now i do have this active question for myself like what does this look like now when that is not quite as easy as it used to be also the geopolitics of it all are also making travel in some instances a lot less fun than it used to be american passports mean different things in different contexts and sometimes it's like should we don an accent should we make sure that people do not think (laughs) that we're coming from america so that um not to get like on a super long tangent but we went to london for one of my birthdays my birthday's in february and it was whichever birthday happened right after trump was elected and Mm -hmm. literally people were asking us everywhere we went do you support trump and i'm like wow really yes and you know november to february like it wasn't that long but it was so present to them and like i remember at one point 
we were taking wow. like a, a pedicab in, in the middle of the night in London. And it was literally like one in the morning and the pedicab driver like turned his head back. He was like, you're American. Do you like Trump? And I was like, I need you to focus on the road. Like, please, please. <laughs> it's just like it's just like I went to South America the week after Obama was elected, and literally everyone coming up to me going, "Obama!" <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> I think it was partially a different thing, but <laughs> Sorry, keep going. <laughs> yeah, that's. That sounds nice. Yeah. <laughs> it was nice. It was actually kind of nice. It does. It does. So, so yeah, I feel like but, that's the other side of the work that we don't always focus on on the show because I think a lot of times we are also trying to, to frame things in terms of solutions, right? And and being really thoughtful and how we're presenting the work and 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 trying to be um, supportive and encouraging for our colleagues, but I also think it's okay for our colleagues to understand how complicated it is and mm -hmm. how much of a personal cost there can be associated with um, taking this on on behalf of any number of people who cannot or will not. Mm. That's real. Ooh, that I... So real. <laughs> <laughs> I think like, I mean, transparently, now that I've like stepped away from at least arts administration for for a minute, for just a minute, um, <laughs> I think I have, I feel like a different perspective now on what like the dynamic was between, you know, especially EDI work in this space mm -hmm. and my, uh, my personal values my mental health my <laughs> all of that um and I realized that like I was probably like living well no was, I definitely felt like living a double life <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. for sure yeah. especially um you know uh being being uh black queer femme non-binary femme being um and having come to view my experiences through a certain lens you know um you often find yourself having to edit a bridge your thoughts or um a lot yeah yeah or you're just you know constantly having a different experience it, it feels like you're experiencing reality a different <laughs> in a different way but you have to pretend that you're experiencing it the same way everybody else is for a mm -hmm. moment mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. especially in edi work yeah. like you know you're meeting a lot of people where they're at you're collaborating which is i mean which is necessary to get stuff done and at the same time, it takes a toll to <laughs> constantly in the back of, I feel like in the back of my head, especially know what I need, or at least yeah. what other people who hold the identities that I do need, like the true change we actually need, or at least the liberation I think we need. Um, just knowing that and 
maybe not uh not that you don't say it but it's how you say it there's some mm-hmm. th- there's something about the way you have to maneuver yourself that is just tiring and and don't get me wrong you don't have to maneuver yourself like that if you don't want to there are plenty of people who do not um but i think we all know that (laughs) when you're trying to get certain goals accomplished in the edi space and especially when you're working with folks who have certain privileges whether it be white privilege or whether they're straight and uh straight and cisgender or wealthy or whatever privilege that is <laughs> you know you'll get you get pushback sometimes you, mm-hmm. you have to finesse to get a certain result but that finessing comes at a cost is what i'm trying to say mm-hmm. it takes such a toll yeah, yeah. to me I, I kind of liken it to like being neurodivergent in a neurotypical world oh yes and you yeah. just sort of have to you know somehow get your brain to sort of conform to these neurotypical systems um, when your brain just naturally wants to function a different way. And it's just Mm -hmm. like, it's so tiring. It's so exhausting because you just sort of, you know, being the Aquarius moon that I am, I am very unsettled when things don't make sense. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you know, as we all know, white supremacy just simply doesn't make sense. Um, least <laughs> of all to, um, you know, the people who benefit from it. Um, you know, and being in these white occupied spaces and doing this work, it's just sort of feels like you're constantly a holding space for these people who have been raised since the day they came out of the womb to be racist, but also have been told that being a racist is the worst thing in the world. And so trying to square that (laughs) for folks just causes this cognitive dissonance. And as we all know, the way the brain works, when there's cognitive dissonance, either you try to avoid it entirely or, you know, try to rationalize or you try to just sort of just stamp it out entirely like no 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 you're you are stupid and ridiculous and this is a terrible thing and here's how I'm going to discredit you in every way and it's just you never know which one you're going to get to some sort of varying degree (laughs) and especially being a person of color being a queer person who is also also on unlearning all of those things unlearning the internalized homophobia unlearning the uh you know internalized racism and white supremacy all of those things that you mentioned Paige earlier doing all of that work on myself and you know holding space for all of these people to do it as well it's just it's it's a lot and so I mean to answer your question Lee how do I keep motivated I don't know I mean I was thinking like the thing that like oh I draw boundaries but then like no it's, it's kind of like I don't if I'm being honest I try to draw boundaries I try to be very much like you know five o'clock comes and I'm done and I'm not answering any emails and I'm not you know answering any phone calls but then it's like you know I'll go and have dinner with like you know some white friends and then I'm just like sitting there and it's just like somebody says something I'm like okay 
should we address this <laughs> or should we just let let dinner continue uh, we have to address it <laughs> um but you know just being yeah i don't know i mean i think for me i i have a sense of optimism and i don't know why but i do <laughs> um that at some point we can we can square this circle circle the square square the circle am i saying that right isn't that isn't that a saying <laughs> okay looking at your <laughs> looking looking at your faces <laughs> but that we can make things make sense <laughs> is what i'm trying to say um and i want to be a part of the solution at all times i want to keep things real I want to be pointing out and diagnosing wherever I can. Um, but I want to be a part of that solution because I do just as an artist, as a human, as a person, um, I'd like to think that we could get to a place where we can actually like short of some sort of act of God, you know, like Star Trek is real. <laughs> um, you know, like we as a as a species can come together and you know figure this out so that like we can create more joy more of the time for more people and i realize that's kind of pollyanna and i know garrett was making fun of me a couple of weeks ago <laughs> because of it but i really do like like it 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 just feels like it it has to be possible all the evidence to the contrary but it has to be possible Right, so I don't know. Yeah, I, I will say. Important. I, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I, I was gonna say. I, I will say. I think part of it for me is coming back to at least the spaces where I, and I'm lucky to have these spaces. Not everybody does, but just where I can be my full self, also while doing the work, because that is not every place. Mm -hmm, um. Mm -hmm. I am really, really grateful right now for the work I do with Rep, Relationships Evolving Possibilities. Shout out to them. It's a abolitionist project based abolitionist project based here in the Twin Cities. And so when you are coming to something with a baseline understanding, like for example, in an abolitionist space, a baseline understanding that we all want to abolish a police and prisons great we can have a different conversation when we all <laughs> when we can all start there you know um would you or uh i love you know some of the folks that um i interact with in the birth workspace including my partner nadine hey boo um but who sees you know our work the same way who also understand who who understand me as also a queer black a black birth worker and we can be honest with each other and affirm each other in the ways that you know systems are harming us as black and queer people especially when it comes to like our reproductive systems it's helpful when you don't like you have to sh don't have to shrink your experiences for yeah. folks you know um and but it feels so isolating when you feel like you can't right sounds... Right. Million Artist Movement has been an important space for me in that too, because all folks who are artists and working within some of the same systems, sometimes the same professions, but 
we all are revolutionary artists and with black and brown leadership. And so you're talking about artists who have political education, who are more in the lineage of like the black arts tradition kind of thing. Um, and that's a place where, you know, I don't have to explain why the thing that we do should have purpose. I don't have to explain, <laughs> you know, there are just certain basic prerequisites that <laughs> I don't have to, I don't have to argue with those folks about. I can be my full self and it's understood that of course my art would be political because my existence is political as, you know, who I am in this world in America right now. Uh, and we can talk about that and embrace that and not try to sweep it under the rug. Instead, we use it for empowerment and healing. So spaces like that yeah. are really what have kept me going and what have kept me in Minneapolis at times, to be honest, um, especially with the whiteness of this place. I have told especially people million artist movement like look y'all if i didn't find y'all i wouldn't be here um, <laughs> yeah. and that's real like yeah. i can i considered ending my internship early and in everything the first year i got here until i found like-minded folks um who i could be myself with so that's crucial it's crucial like none of us can do it alone and i i think for me it's okay to acknowledge when you have given what you are capable of giving mm -hmm. to a thing yeah. and then moving on, right? And I don't think that in any way implies a lack of commitment to an area or to a passion or to a cause, but there may be a time that you have to say for yourself, it's time for me to pivot because there are other ways that I need to use my energy, my mm. personal resources. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I think that that's a part of it too. And sometimes when I think about that stat um, that you mentioned earlier, Rocky, that I, I also talk to the team about a lot, that sort of two year expiration date for a lot of people who work in equity spaces, that is okay, right? And mm -hmm. it's important not to beat yourself up about it or let that narrative be that you know you are not really committed it it may be that that was the contribution that you were going to give and there are you know other places your career is going to go and i think that's a thing that we more of us should say to each other who work in these spaces that it's okay when you decide that you are going to do a different thing just like anybody else does with any other kind of professional endeavor <laughs> I shade of that. That reminds Absolutely. me of what uh, Adrian Marie Brown has to say about decentralization and emergent strategy. Like, none, no one of us is meant to hold this anyway. And so maybe, like, I wonder, like, what what would it look like if we got to a place where we like embrace that this work is difficult, mm -hmm. and maybe it's intentional that someone only does it for a couple of years, yeah. or we rotate. Yeah. or it's not a full-time position or not someone's entire job or it's supported differently like it's not really meant to it don't it, it's not sustainable to do it that way clearly we're seeing correct. that correct <laughs> <Yes. laughs> correct correct <laughs> 
Well, on that note, I think we should put a pin in this conversation. Obviously, we are going to keep having this conversation because that's what this whole show is about. <laughs> Literally. If you're, if you're new, <laughs> this is what we talk about. It's never done. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but we have a fantastic guest coming up. We're so excited. Musician, uh, educator, activist all sorts of things um really 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 fun interview with a really really cool person from the dmv that's right (laughs) um mr alex lang coming up right after the break see you in a second And we are back, and we are so thrilled today to be joined by our illustrious next guest, um, the fantastic clarinetist, speaker, thought leader, activist, Alex Lang. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Well, let me get some of your bona fides out there. (laughs) Um, Alex Lang uh, is the principal clarinetist of the Phoenix Symphony and a nationally recognized speaker and thought leader. He's an accomplished instrumental artist whose work represents a modern take on orchestral practice. Alex is active as a performing artist and as an artist who teaches. He's passionate and curious about organizational culture, design, and learning. His practice navigates the push and pull between the tradition of a legacy art form and its unfixed future. Alex is a musician who believes that music is not just sound, it is sounds and words and people. Alex began playing the clarinet at age 11 in his hometown of Silver Spring, Maryland, DMV, what, what? (laughs) In 2002, he joined the Phoenix Symphony as principal clarinetist. Uh, In addition to his work with the Phoenix Symphony, recent seasons has found him contributing his sound in a range of other projects, including as a soloist with the Sphinx Virtuosi at Carnegie Hall, with Lawrence Brownlee in the world premiere of Tyson Sori's Cycle of My Being, with Thomas Hampson as part of his Song of America Beyond Liberty project, with the Recollective Orchestra in the 2019 soundtrack recording of Disney's The Lion King, and as a member of Gateway's Festival Orchestra. Alex has been an invited speaker to an annual conference, to the annual conferences of both the Association of British Orchestras and the League of American Orchestras, where in 2019 he was a keynote speaker. In addition to his talks and appearances on panels, he sometimes uses the written word to unpack and explore his practice. As a teacher, he's been a frequent collaborator with the Los Angeles Philharmonic Philharmonic's YOLA program, the Youth Orchestra Los Angeles, and a faculty member of for the National Youth Orchestra of the United States of America, the League of American Orchestras Essentials of Orchestra Management Seminar, and Juilliard Extension, formerly the Evening Division. And he serves on the boards 
for the Arizona, uh, both for the Arizona School for the Arts and the Gateways Music Festival. Oh my goodness, so much stuff. Thank you so much, Alex, for being here. You're well, busy yeah. Man. Sorry for not for not making sure you had a much shorter version of that. Thing. No, but we want to get all that out there. We want right, the people right. to know all of the things. <laughs> so we know that you know you you uh, share a passion with the three of us for you know making. Um, the classical music space, you know, working towards making it a much more accessible, inclusive, equitable space. And so I'm curious, you know, how did that work start for you? Um, and and what has 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 led you to have such a passion for this work? Hmm. I mean, I think it starts uh, for me with my own personal and artistic interest in being in closer relation to black people, really, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then um, sort of trying to figure out how to make that happen and why that's not happening. And um, that's really, that's sort of the beginning and the end for me, right? It's a, it's, it's a, it's a personal uh, artistic zeal, a personal artistic need to say things and connect with people and be in conversation, be in community. Um, and that have, has led to uh, a lot of other things. That coupled with um, just a real wonky interest that I've had in orchestras as organizations going back to um, when I first sort of began to understand them that way. So that would be in grad school for me. And finding that that was just really stimulating for me, that I found this, that, that, on that lens of of understanding the art form to be um, yeah compelling and powerful and sparked my curiosity and also not unrelated to this you know to what you just asked where a lot of the policies practices concepts ideas that um, you know lead to who's in the hall, who is it for, who is it allegiant to, who, who, who feels like this is their space. That's where a lot of that conversation um, happens and, and plays out. Um, and so, yeah, that's sort of, you know, my, my nutshell story on that regard. You, you know, Alex, since we started this podcast about two years ago, your name was one of the names that was like on the original list of people we wanted to have conversations with. Mm -hmm. So I'm so glad you're here this morning. And I think a lot about my own experiences of being a black person in orchestras and the, the ways that there was this um, constant balancing act for me of the weight of representation in mm -hmm. an art form that is not about, it's not specifically about my, an embodied kind of performance, right? Where people are watching me as the performer on stage. Mm -hmm. And then my love for the music, my love for playing and feeling like the, the orchestra itself was kind of hostile mm -hmm. to Black bodies, right? So I'm, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about how your racial identity has shaped your experiences um, as a musician and, and also, if you will, touching on what it was as a young person before you were professional too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think as an overview, let me say that like, obviously it's a hard task as a black person to pull out like, this is how my blackness 
impacted this aspect of my life, even with something as pervasive as, as you know, my artistic practice. So that's a, you know, it's hard to like suss out, like, when is it just like life as a black person, right? And when is it life as like a, a black artist uh, in, in a predominantly white space? Having said that, um, you know, I, I definitely felt that um, sense of, uh, you know, representing a whole bunch of people who weren't there. There's also sort of phenomenon, which I can understand now, which I didn't understand then, which is like, you know, it's the, the business is not set up to have room for um, average black artists, right? <laughs> so just to be there, you have to be pretty, pretty amazing, which I didn't realize sort of puts a pressure on us, right? Like to feel like I, my only, my only way to be here is to be in that pole position, right? If I'm, if I'm not in that position, I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm not, I'm not doing this right. Um, or maybe I, I won't be able to do this. Um, you know, I think it, it also, so it, 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 there was an awareness for sure as a, as a, as a young person. I think at that time, you know, there's always been a story around it, I guess is a way of saying it. Is that, and what that story is has shifted over time. So I think in the beginning, I was really, I really hewed to a story about the universality of this art form. And I wanted, I wanted to, you know, it was a lot of like, I don't want to be known as a black artist. I want to be known as a great artist, right? Uh, or, or I don't want to be known as a black person exploring uh, a, a white, a largely white art form or art form that's known as white. I want to be known as an artist, capital A, you know, exposing truths, capital T, right? So like very 19, <laughs> like, you know. Um, I think over time I came to a scale and again, uh, you know, through study and, and experience came to understand sort of the more of the social implications and the social placement of the art form, some of the social systems that the art form is um, replicating and supporting and and um, uh, and I think, you know, as a, a young person, you know, definitely the landscape is dotted with these really sort of powerful poignant moments of um you know realizing that that i was having a different experience you know realizing that i was sort of on my own in uh in this um and i think that's partly why you know i developed when i got my first taste of what it would feel like to um practice this art form in a way that was affirming culturally um that rather than it just being this uh that was that it was loving <laughs> that was uh welcoming it really lit a fire in me and also made me realize like oh like this is what it's supposed to be like this is what it could be like this is why everyone loves it so much right this is why everyone has you know their whole life inside of this music meaning all of their friends and the people they're dating and everything like oh i i i, I can sort of understand that now in ways that i didn't before so it's definitely been a journey and it still is right i mean i think that um you know i um what is this 2020 i think if you would ask me in 20 in 2008, even did I see myself, you know, speaking and acting and building 
in this way. I don't know that I would have predicted this exactly, you know. Um, so it's unfolding and, and, and we'll see where it goes. As, as a quick follow up, could you say a little bit about maybe what's then changed in the last 15 years or so that has found you in this place where now this is a bigger piece of what it is that your relationship to the art is? Yeah, I mean, part of it, certainly in all humility, is the way the field has changed, right? And so suddenly there's an appetite for thoughts and, and ways of articulating thoughts and experiences that there just wasn't before. Um, part of it, so that has changed for sure. I think what has also changed within me is, um, yeah, I think I, I, I can't say where well, it's certainly it's all throughout the art form. So I think that I felt like, you know, that there that, that there was somehow talking about the whole of myself in relation to the art form and my practice of it or my art, right, was, you know, not appropriate or or allowed or somehow was mm -hmm. talking about something other than the music a real aha for me was like understanding that like oh music is sounds words and people it is all of those things you can't actually separate one from the other you can focus on one right for sure right when i am in an audition hall and there's a screen up and someone's playing on the other side of it and we're listening and like clearly we're focused on sound right and and understanding music through that but look at the things we had to do to actually just to get it on that focus right we have to like put up physical barriers and do things to make it just that right and i there's reasons for that and we can look, talk about that as a separate thing but the point that i'm making is that it was an aha for me to realize that like oh all of this is music and all of this is your musical like gift and legacy and opportunity right so the words and people thing definitely you know Sound was a big thing in, in my household, though neither of my parents were practicing musicians, but words and people were really big, right? And so understanding like, oh, I can step into my, 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 um, my legacy, my gifts, my family's, um, you know, sort of specialness and bring that to bear, right? And, and that, was, that was really, um, that was a real like turning moment for me. And that was, I don't know. Yeah, that was even just in the last eight years. But that formulation, right? Understanding that. And um, so, yeah. Mm, I, so, so many thoughts, so many connections as you were, <laughs> as you were speaking there. Like, I, I don't remember what caused it, but I feel like I've also had like a similar aha moment of, oh, it's never just the music, you know, mm -hmm. like, it's not just that even that to make the music itself, it's not just the music. And especially as I look at like, especially people of, of color, people of culture, how our music is connected to mm -hmm. so many things. It's never just music. It's our stories. Mm -hmm. It's our culture. Mm -hmm. It's our way of life, our way of being like, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. But you talk about like your family um how the words and people <laughs> from your family you know influence you still and like provide foundation I, I wonder who else you know who have who has influenced you who has been a mentor to you throughout your throughout your career um mm -hmm. yeah who who has been well, important along the way well let me start of course with family so my parents Susan and Clarence Lang uh, my sister Nina Lang 
And my brother, Justin Lang, who's also um, active in in this space, uh, particularly, uh, you know, um, arts and, and what is commonly referred to as EDI. So those were those, you know, that the the the, the dinner table conversations um, were um, powerful. Uh, looking back, I can see that now. Um, my parents were married in 1967. Um, my mother is uh, racialized as white and identifies as a white woman. My father uh, passed, but uh, identify, was identified or racialized by the world as a black man. He was born in Panama, um, moved to Jamaica, came here when he was 12. Um, so, you know, 67, I think that's a year before or after Loving versus the State of Virginia, right? So this is an interracial couple. Um, you know, really, really uh, in a sort of pioneering time in that regard. Um, and um, so, you know, the understanding in our household around like, where do we fit in? And who are we? And what are we like, these were these were like, kind of complex. Um, and then just like, you know, my parents are both just heady people. Um, we didn't have a TV for many years, you know, so just like a bunch of weirdos <laughs> in the best way and, um, and understanding that like the, and, and also from the beginning, you know, I can bring this up is that like, I, I was aware from the beginning in part because of conversations that my brother and I were having and experience we were having that like, I was doing this thing that I love, that I was good at, that I got attention for, that really was like profound to me in so many ways. And also there was this racial overlay, right? And that this art form, you know, I wrote my entrance essay to college about these conversations I was having with my brother at the time. And so this tension around like, where do you fit into this art form as a black person? What do you, what, you know, what, what systems are you sort of replicating in all of this? Um, trying to figure that out has been there the whole time. I think what changed go Lee going back to the, was understanding like, oh, this is like, this is the art. This is, this is what it has been for me. And this is like a, a just real for me, but also, um, you know, I began to develop a way to like, bring that to bear in in my work itself. And um, that sort of just gained its own momentum um, internally, artistically, actually, I realized like, oh, I'm I'm getting better as an artist, I'm growing, I'm thinking new things, I'm going for more things, I'm taking more risks. Mm -hmm. I'm getting into relationships artistically that I wouldn't have gotten into otherwise, and those are sparking new things. And so it just sort of continues to feed itself in that regard. Well, one of the things that you said that really resonated with me and my background, um, you know, was being a young artist and just sort of feeling like, you know, oh, I just want to be like a capital A artist telling the capital T truth and, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, feeling as though you're in spaces where, you know, to bring the full width and breadth of who you are um, perhaps is inappropriate. People aren't ready for all of that. And for me, my reaction to that, like I grew up in classical music spaces and voice lessons every week and in the band and playing the clarinet and all of this stuff, much like you. 
I'm not well, not much like you, but mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but my reaction at like 1920 was to leave the field, mm-hmm. um, and to sort of discover, you know, to to really pursue some of the other interest interest that I had because it was like, man, I can't be myself like 100 mm-hmm. percent, like. Mm-hmm. And I've only recently, you know, in the past six or seven years, really sort of come back to it and really started to really see where you're talking about, you know, when it comes to sounds, words, people, all of that stuff, and really devote my career right now to helping other people who look like us um, enter this field and feel comfortable, feel safe to do their best work, that sort of thing. So I'm curious, you know, you know, when you are with like these these younger kids, I know you teach a lot, um, and you're like the, these kids who perhaps are thinking about leaving the field, mm. perhaps are feeling that that way that we felt when we were nineteen. You know, those young singers or musicians or the librettists, writers. What's the advice that you give to them to to help keep mm. them motivated and and keep going? Yeah, it depends. I mean, if the I mean, I do think that um, it's a risky, it's a very it's a it's a risky thing to specialize yourself in vocationally. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, So I'm cautious to find out like what the thing is. If someone is thinking like, maybe I don't want to do this for a living. I think that's actually probably a really healthy thought <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and worth exploring because, you know, newsflash, you don't have to do this for a living mm-hmm. to find joy in it and to find pleasure. And, you know, so a, a lot of times I think what what people are thinking about when they are thinking about leaving the field. First off, yeah, when the field, it's like, what does that even mean, honestly, right? But I, I, I know what you mean, but I just think like maybe we should check we our language around that because it's like, anyway, um, but I think the question is, um, yeah, so like if you're thinking I'm leaving because I don't want to do this or I'm leaving because of performance anxiety because you're on the performing side, right? Um, I understand that. I really do. And I think like, you know, I'm, I'm, I would be in support of that if that's what it's about if you're leaving though because you feel like you know even if you're leaving because you feel like i can't take the isolation and the racism i feel like well i can support that too (laughs) and you know your your health and your happiness and it's a it's a it's a very um there's not a lot of financial reward for specializing yourself to this degree in this field if you're not going to get satisfaction from it almost regardless of why you're not getting satisfaction it's a legitimate sort of thing to think about maybe i should do something else and maybe i might find that i can fall back in love with this thing if i'm not asking it to pay my bills or i can just leave any situation i don't like because i'm just here doing this for joy and if you're not making me joyful then i'm out of here and that's like i'm gonna go home um so all that i think is like what i might bring to that conversation um but if it's someone who you know just needs a pep talk, right? Or just needs to maybe know that they are not as uh, isolated as maybe they are feeling and um, that they, you know, they need their network expanded or they need uh, some mentors who understand, then, 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 then that's like a technical problem, right? Let's mm-hmm. solve that. 
let's solve that. But if it's, but it, you know, I think it's legitimate to ask, like, do I want to do this for a living? And I think, you know, people in the field, we often talk about, you know, you hear not so much anymore, but you still hear like, oh, you know, the death of classical music and classical music is dying. And it's like, that's just total bogusness, right? The art form is in, is doing fine. It's punching way above its weight, given the number of people on planet earth who actually like the thing, right? It's like, <laughs> got all of this infrastructure and scaffolding around it. The good news is, is that like, it's fine in that regard. Vocational mm -hmm. classical musicking, that's a different story. That, that does have some challenges, meaning doing this for a living, the way that we all do it, that in that it, it pays our bills and, and, and you know, brings money in. That's a different situation. Um, but the actual art form itself is great. So you don't have to be involved in this vocationally to love it, to be engaged with it, to propagate it, to profit from it even, right? You don't have to make this your, own, your, your job to do it that way. Now, if you, if you wanna make it your job, right? Because you're like, man, how cool would it be to, to, to get paid to practice? Uh, that's then okay, right? Mm -hmm. And then I think there's a question of like, well, I will say this, I could just share this. I'm just imagining I'm talking to this person. My capacity for pain, right, is a part of I think how I got successful. Meaning, you know, there, it, it, it's a it's a struggle for sure. Right. I mean, there's going to be struggle in this thing mm -hmm. um, and your ability to sort of be resilient in the face of that can be really one of the and maybe is I don't know. I don't know the stats, but I think it can be a, a real determinant in, um, you know, are you able to get through that and then translate this into getting paid to practice? I really, really appreciate that. Um distinction between vocationally <laughs> being in classical music and you know just doing this because you love it I especially think like we're in a time where we're also encouraged to like capitalize on our talents like mm. every talent as much as possible or mm. if you're not good at it it's not worth doing or if you can't make money off it it's not mm. worth doing mm. if it can't be part of your career if it can't be your side hustle it's not worth doing and mm. I've seen so many people like actually fall out of their love for music or other type of performing that that way. And I appreciate you just naming that like both are are important. Like actually when we consider actually all of that, it is thriving as an art form, as a genre. Oh, she, yeah. I know mm -hmm. I learned how to sing because my auntie learned how to sing. She never did it professionally, but she was like, I enjoy doing it. And so I still do it. And so you're going to sing around the house with me. And that yeah. turned into me having <laughs> vocal training later in yeah. life because she was casually doing it. Mm -hmm. But for mm -hmm. the folks who are vocationally doing it, though, I do wonder, my, my next question <laughs> is how administrators, organizations, like folks in, um, well, my former position, Lee's in Rocky's current position, mm -hmm. what we can be doing to support like the full breadth of mm -hmm. artists like you support your careers, make it better for folks who are doing this vocationally. Yeah, well, uh, one thing is don't quit because there's not a, there's not a lot of y'all. <laughs> <So, laughs> if you guys came and said you were thinking about leaving the field, now we might have a conversation. <laughs> 
Might have to call you for a pep talk. <laughs> That's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll put my number in the chat right now. Please. <laughs> um, what, so the question is, is what can, what can administrators? What, yeah, what, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think there are, you know, let me start just like as practically as possible, right? It's like influence hiring, you know, bringing material benefit to um, artists and practitioners, influence hiring around stuff that maybe doesn't have anything to do with the sound making part of music, but maybe more of the words and people part, like who's catering your gala, um, you know, who, mm -hmm. what other contracts can you, is the organization engaging in that you can look at what relationship, how are you using those contracts to make relationships in the community for the benefit of the institution and the community. Um, then, of course, hiring around artists, right? Like there's, you know, there, that that can be from something as like rigid and complex as hiring for a professional orchestra to, you know, the, the, the range of guest artists and soloists that headline that something someplace like the Minnesota Opera brings in to all kinds of artists roles right in the choir and chorus and extras and all of it. So I think um, and then I, I think um, uh, being ambitious actually probably will be helpful, right in terms of, you know, having ambitions to lead organizations and to be um, in more rooms and processes and being able to bring your perspective and voice to bear. Um, um, and I think um, maybe also, yeah, maybe, um, well, let me leave it at that. I think also like supporting hyphenated artistry, right? So, um, you know, and, and, and under, yeah. So, and then by that, I mean like, you know, people who are a thing hyphen something else, right? So artist administrator is sort of a, a, a classic one, but as, and, and under, and, and on both sides of that, right? So uh, that, so that's, those are some things that come to mind. Yeah, thanks Thank you for that. That was, um, I think those were some important perspectives, especially around the folks who work in this space pushing themselves to think about their functions as leaders. Ultimately, I, I also share the opinion that that's going to make a lot of stuff change. Um, one thing that I want to ask you about, and I know we're getting to the, the bottom of the hour, so to speak, but I hadn't realized before that you had familial connections to the Caribbean. And <laughs> we talk a lot on this show sort of about, you know, how Caribbean identity shows up in a lot of activist spaces, especially um, there's a professor I had in undergrad, Winston James, mm -hmm. whose research was about how the move for um, black rights in the United States in the early 20th century was spurred by the arrival of folks from the Caribbean and sort of how that pushed that conversation forward suddenly. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe in the last two or three years, part of a more recent push has been post George Floyd, right? And a lot of people thinking very differently about how identity factors into lots of different workplaces. Do you have any perspectives on maybe post George Floyd, um, 
what is changing for organizations if you are experiencing the change as being real or performative and if you feel like there are new opportunities or just greater momentum for those of us in the field and i'm and i'm using that very broadly right because i think performing arts irrespective of the discipline um we are in very very similar boats um mm -hmm. and not all of those boats are are doing well on the water right mm -hmm. so could you say a little bit about maybe what this current moment is as you see it so the, the question is around how have things changed since the murder of George Floyd? If they've changed at all, right? Like, I think that's part of the, yeah. the question um, at hand. Yeah, I think they've changed for sure within the community of artists, at least in, in my community of artists. So I have seen... Um, uh, black orchestral instrumentalists come together in in um, both sort of organized and anecdotal ways. I think w we are um, clearer on the importance and value of our connection, uh, the importance of sharing our experiences with each other, not um, feeling like you're all on your own right, be it just sitting in rehearsal, like, you know, just doing the work, um, or maybe facing some sort of a challenge, you know, in the workplace. Um, one of the things that I got to be a part of in that regard was the founding of uh, Black Orchestral Network, uh, which released an open letter to the field last spring called Dear American Orchestras. We continue to organize, we've hosted a couple of virtual convenings for the community to get um, insight and feedback from the community about sort of plans that we're developing as well as like where should we be going we um, in our open letter issued some calls to action uh, under the sort of general headline of hire black orchestral artists like that's like the the, the main one the field has been talking about doing that for about 50 years and seems to have created like a little bit of a cottage industry around talking about it, right? And creating programs, also sort of ab abiding some philosophies about what, what the issue is, right? Which has a lot to do with like problematizing black people, saying there's a pipeline problem or black, right? Look, I mean, is there inequitable access to instrumental music instruction? Absolutely, there is. And is that uh, something um, <clears throat> to take up or investigate? Yes. Is that necessarily, germane as it relates to we have two openings in this particular orchestra right so it's not like there's not like we're not talking about like massive numbers of openings actually we're talking about relatively speaking a small pool of vacancies inside american orchestras and so um you know and we have over overproduced the uh the I, well, you can argue whether or not it's overproduced. We've produced a lot of really highly qualified musicians. In any case, so I think that um, that's been one change that I've seen definitely is the community coming together more. I have also seen more um, more colleagues on both the performing and the administrative side, colleagues who are who are racialized as white and identify as white coming forward and saying like, I don't like the status quo. I don't like the lack of black people in this environment. I don't like the way we are in relation to black people. Um, I'm speaking about black people because that's what is um, sort of on my mind in this moment at least. Um, 
and uh, so that's been, I think, an interesting uh, and 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 not insignificant development as part of the landscape. Um, there's also been, uh, you know, uh, I won't even call it a backlash. It's a reassertion of um, the the role that this art form and its institutions have played in, um, you know, propagating a, a white supremacist narrative, right? And that hides in this art form or behind often the word classical and the notion of classicality and universality, right? And this idea that like we, this art form represents sort of the, the best, the most pure, the most elevated sort of artistic creations that humans have produced on planet Earth, right? And it's, um, it's a colorless, colorblind, you know, narrative that the, the narrative of classicality is like this art form is from nowhere. It's outside of space and time. It's sort of pierced that veil and moved beyond like a, you know, I, 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 there's a line I use a lot, but like, like it's Kepler's music of the spheres, right? Like it's just like this, the language, if, if, if the universe had a soundtrack, it would be classical music. That's sort of the narrative of, of the art form, right? And so um, that creates a lot of space. And then you have with that, and it's just coincidence, right, that all of the heroes, literally the bus that sort of, you know, dot some of these concert halls are, are all um, white males. Um, and that's just a, a, a coincidence of the thing. Um, and um, to sort of inquire around that, right, is to start to degrade the very um, sort of essence of the thing, right? That if you're talking about that, you're, you're, you're not only sort of not following the company script, you're actually like engaging in some sort of like, um, I don't know, uh, you know, aesthetic degradation of the thing, right? Um, so that's a, like that's like a sticky wicket to navigate, and that mm -hmm. that 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 um, that that's already in place. So there's been, I think, a reassertion of that uh, as well. Um, but um, you know, I think there are some things to 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 look at. I can definitely see impacts in the lives of artists that are in my generation, composers librettists um in some cases i'm seeing you know i'm seeing opportunities and there's you know these people i went to school with and know and i'm seeing like oh wow like so-and-so is really like having a moment here and you're excited for them and you're happy and occasionally you get to play too right so it's like this is great um so i think it's a i think it's a i think it's 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 a mixed bag um and, I, and it really is site specific you know, it, it depends on 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 the in, on the individual arts institution, where in the world it is, who's leading it, and you know what sort of forces and agendas are in play in that regard. Yeah, because I mean that backlash, <laughs> the backlash has been jarring, um, to say the least. At least for me and my my position, especially, um, you know, I, people are 
you know, describing it as sort of like a pendulum or the pendulum shifted. And it's just like, no, this feels like a slingshot, you know, mm. <laughs> especially, <laughs> especially here in Minnesota, you know, you mm. walk down Lindale and Lake and you still see businesses that are boarded up from all the uprisings and realizing that we were here at the epicenter for this global movement, this global uprising for racial justice. And then you have, you know, people going like, oh, are we still talking about this? You know, and it's just like, uh, so I'm curious, like, what does the next phase of of activism in this space look like for you? Yeah, you know, I don't know. And I would hesitate to call myself to call myself an activist. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, especially in relation to um, to Minneapolis right and sure, sure. And, and what was but i i i i think that um you know i think and i'm i'm interested in working and creating and building community with black artists um so personally right that's just mm -hmm. like that personally that's 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 something that drives me it's not the only thing that 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 brings me joy or artistic interest and satisfaction but it's it's a big one and also it's it's one that i still feel like i haven't completely explored right going back to like it's not it it did not really show up for me in my practice until really the beginning of my professional career you know i'm a, it, it, so it, it and so i'm i still feel like i have <laughs> some catching up to do and some um new new uh you know new 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 veins to mine you know new new people to meet new ways to music um new discoveries to make um and uh, and I'm interested in and I am interested in building in that regard. Like, how can we make this? How can we make this easier? Um, how can we make you know this more of these connections? Um, how can we um, really lean into the participatory aspects of the art form? That part is also just interesting to me, just as a thing. Like, what what does that look like? And um, how can we create in that regard? Well, speaking of building connections, <laughs> we are, as Leah mentioned earlier, um, sort of nearing the end of our time together. But I want to make sure that if people want to connect with you and mm. you know see and hear what you've got coming up, that we make some space to make sure that um you know folks have that information so do you have any performances or anything uh coming up that you want to get out there websites socials all that fun yeah stuff? i don't have any socials which is i know makes me a weirdo um no it makes you smart <laughs> but, uh, well I'm, I'm excited about a, a couple things coming up i'll just talk about them i'm excited actually uh later today i get on a plane and fly to DC to present at the National Association for Mus uh, Research and Music Education with my colleague uh, Evan Tobias from uh, Arizona State University, a project we did um, around some performances I did last year of the Weber Clarinet Concerto. So we did a whole sort of project alongside that, looking at the 
the, the, the learning of the thing. Um, so my learning and how we could share that out, also doing some transmedia stuff. So I did a lot of recording of myself and then we shared that with a collaborator who's a beat maker and a producer and she transformed it into new stuff that we're then looking to put in the hands of some young people in classrooms to make all kinds of new stuff with. So that's an in interesting expression uh, of my interests um, and just a great project that I'm really happy to be a part of. And then uh, this spring, I'm really excited. I'm going to be hosting a um, speculative fiction workshop with uh, Ed Finn and the Center for Science and the Imagination at Arizona State University. It's a really exciting project where we're going to bring together a bunch of different thinkers and artists, um, give them some prompts, shake them up a little bit, and then uh, they're going to working. Uh, each group will sort of be assigned a writer and they're going to produce uh, four or five short stories um, that are speculating about uh, the future of the American orchestra. So looking at American orchestras in specific contests, how are we going to be impacted by climate or technology or social justice or social uprisings? And how's that going to change the art form? The idea being, can we imagine some of these things in, you know, in some detail and then maybe um, drop some breadcrumbs about how things could be different? Pick those up right now. Can we make some of these changes right now? So that's another project that I've got coming that I'm excited about. That sounds amazing. That sounds so cool. So if people want to learn more about that, um, alexlangmusic.com, is that the yeah, place to go? Yeah, right, cool. yes, yes. I can't <laughs> promise that it's going to be completely up to date, but eventually it will be. Eventually, eventually. Cool. So we'll put that in the... Uh, show notes so everybody go visit and learn more about Alex. Alex, thank you so much for being here today. This was such yes, a wonderful conversation. Oh, thank you so much. I just uh, I really enjoy the time and uh, honored to to have been included as a guest on the score. Oh, well, we are honored that you joined us today. And everyone, um stay tuned. We will be right back for Pure Black Joy. Yay! Thank you, Alex. Thank you. <laughs> And we are back. We just want to thank Alex Lang one more time for being with us today. Yay! Yay! Muppet dance. <laughs> <laughs> and now it is time for our very favorite segment of the show. And a one, and a two, and a one, two, three, four. It's peanut butter jelly time. Peanut butter jelly time. Peanut butter jelly time. Peanut butter jelly. Peanut butter jelly. Peanut butter jelly with a baseball bat. Peanut butter jelly. Peanut butter jelly. Peanut butter jelly with a baseball bat. That is so much harder to get the timing right <laughs> over Zoom. <laughs> yeah, we don't look very coordinated. No. <laughs> but it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Right. Is this what they meant by buttoned up? No. No. It couldn't possibly. <laughs> but this is Pure Black Joy. This is when we where we talk about all of the Black people, places, ideas, things, foods, music, culture that is making us happy this week. Who would like to go first? Uh, duh. I love going first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, the, oh, so many jokes. So many jokes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, um, I don't want to get fired though. <laughs> <laughs> oh, consequences. So, um, <laughs> on October 29th, a 21 year old African American figure skater named Star Andrews, that's Star with two R's, made history becoming the first Black U.S. skater to earn a Grand Prix medal. Since the series began in 1995, she joins the rarefied ranks along with Debbie Thomas and Surya Bonali as the rare Black woman to uh, medal in international uh, okay. figure skating. That's so, exciting. Yeah, yes. super excited for her. Um, I love it whenever we show up in places where people are not expecting to see us and we uh -huh. demonstrate our excellence so big congratulations mm -hmm. to star super proud of you and i also just want to say in her program what she skates to is beyonce um she skates to i was here and bigger um and she also in other programs uh james brown in vogue um ella fitzgerald Louis Armstrong, and sometimes she skates to herself singing. So I okay, yes, girl, right? I really like her. I'm going to um, become a stan. I think so. Thank you, Star. Mm -hmm. Okay. I was like, do we get jerseys? Do they have jerseys in skating? Like, <laughs> I need to check her out because I remember when I was a kid, Surya Bonali was everything. Yes, backflipping on, on the you, ice. You're not allowed to backflip and she would just like, I'm going to do it anyway. And I was like, yes. Was. <laughs> they, could, they couldn't take her and she'd be yeah. mad. They'd give her second place and she'd stand there with her arms folded being like, you know I won this. You know I won this. <laughs> Vive la France. Well, a thing that made me smile um, this past week was learning that um, my favorite internet auntie, Miss Tabitha. Miss Tabitha, Miss mm -hmm. Tabitha, y'all know who I'm talking about. Tabitha Brown. Mm -hmm. Um, her show, her children's show, Tab Time, was uh nominated for a daytime Emmy. Emmy. Oh, yes. The show itself is rate is nominated for best. Um, uh, I think I'm, I forget which age range. It's broken down by age ranges. Maybe like preschool, kindergarten, or something. It's for kids pretty young. Um, and then she's nominated for best host. Um, Aww. yeah, like so, like that. <laughs> like that. It made me so happy because, like, I have seen her internet come up, you know, like, I was just following her when you know it was her mm -hmm. vegan recipes mm -hmm. and vegan hot dogs and stuff. And I love everything that is happening for her because she seems to just be a wonderful human being and yeah. seems to deserve it and also i've watched a little bit of the show y'all if you have kids or shoot if if you just want to watch it if you just want to watch <laughs> it it's so cute like you're cooking with her but there's all kinds of lessons about like emotions and um you know um a lot of stuff about emotions and emotional intelligence with mm. with kids and she is just herself and so sweet and 
I, I just love it. I love yeah. that there's that content also and that, you know, black and brown babies have her to watch talking about emotional intelligence and regulation and stuff in ways that their little selves can understand. So shout out to Tabitha Brown. Very yes. Happy. Teach those babies to yes. regulate and express their emotions in a healthy <laughs> way. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. Ah, oh, my goodness. Well, I just have a few quick ones. Um, you know, Wakanda Forever. Yes. Opening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have not seen it yet. I, even though it's fiction, I'm planning to go. <laughs> I was waiting for that. <laughs> I will. I will see this one. Okay. <laughs> not to worry. Um, I got a delightful surprise. Um, in my my podcast feed last week um one of my very favorite podcasts still processing is back for another season um new york times podcast hosted by wesley morris and jay wortham um and where they talk about pop culture and music and movies and all sorts of things but from their black, black queer perspectives much like what we do on the show, but they're so smart and so funny and highly recommend checking out their show because they start on a topic and then sort of take a left turn into some often very unexpected territory. And it's always delightful and funny and smart and cool. And so they're, they're awesome. And let's see, what was my, Oh, and my other one was just, you know, um November 15th which was yesterday um it's Jesse Norman's birthday and so I just thought we could just shout her out and her legacy and just appreciate her um brilliant opera singer who's been mentioned a number of times on the show Howard alum H U, you know. I was waiting. (laughs) (laughs) My mother's soror, (laughs) Um, and just all around lovely human being, and we miss her and her voice. Absolutely. So yeah, so I think that's gonna do it for this week, y'all. As always, please leave us a five star review. Five cinco. What for what? (laughs) Or for more with some words would be nice. Um, subscribe on your favorite podcatcher of choice. And of course, tell all of your little friends about us. Um, oh, and if you are in Vancouver this weekend, come check me out at IndieFest. Um, I will be um, on a panel and hosting a workshop. We'll pull all the, the stuff in the show notes. But hey, if you're in Canada this week, come check me out. Um, but yeah, I think that's it any words of wisdom mm. <laughs> draw, draw boundaries how about that draw boundaries <laughs> draw appropriate boundaries. ones at that appropriate boundaries yeah. i yeah. think that's after that first conversation i think that's what my therapist and I will be working on when he gets back from vacation. I <laughs> <laughs> get a therapist. They're great. <laughs> There's also that. Mm-hmm. Do something. Do something good for your mental health. Yes. 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 Work on your mentals. Watch some tap time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Get your life. 
<laughs> All right, and with that, we will see you in two weeks. Everybody, be easy, and we will talk to you soon. Love you. Bye.